Hi, I'm Billy Shore. Welcome to Add Passion and Stir. It's our weekly conversation about food, passion, and making a difference in the world. And our guest today is somebody who I believe has had all of the best jobs. And I'm jealous, Frank Bruni. You've been the New York Times chief restaurant critic. You've been a White House correspondent. Now you're a columnist on the op-ed page. Um, you've got a newsletter. You get to do all of the fun stuff. And we have a lot of serious things to talk about. But um, I just, I'm going to want to start by understanding how you got to do all the good stuff. But Frank Bruni from the New York Times, welcome to Add Passion Stir. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. This feels, Frank, like, and I read your column religiously in the New York Times, this feels like it's got to be one of the best times to be in a position, to have a platform, to influence public opinion. So many critical issues at stake that you write about, particularly in terms of uh, politics. Um, just Let's just start at the beginning. Where did this all begin for you? How did you get into journalism in the first place? You know, I was, um, I always liked writing. Uh, I grew up in a household uh, with a lot of books and a, and, and a healthy regard for the written word. Um, I seemed to be better at writing than I was at some other things. So I started kind of doing it as an extracurricular thing. I wrote for the high school, my high school's newspaper. I wrote for my college's newspaper. And at a certain point, um, I just realized I hadn't come up with any other strategy. I didn't know, I didn't know what else I could do for a living or, um, or for a career. And I realized, well, wait, some people do this. They just keep writing. They write for newspapers. And so I did. Uh, Frank, what was your first job in journalism? My first job in journalism, if we count internships, was I was a fact checker researcher for Newsweek magazine two summers in a row when I was in college. Okay. Internships count. Internships are uh, an important way to get started. And uh, was the way I characterized um, your career in the beginning accurate? Have you had all the best jobs or does it just feel like that way to me? Um, I've had all the jobs you mentioned. Uh, I, I guess there could be debate about whether they're the best jobs. Listen, I, I've, I've had great jobs. Um, I don't even think you mentioned what was maybe my favorite or best job, which was I was the Rome bureau chief for several years for the New York Times. So was, <laughs> that would be a pretty good one too. Yeah. Okay. So you're proving my point. No, I mean, there I've been extraordinarily lucky and I extraordinarily privileged. The, the only thing I was thinking as you said it was um, you were you correctly said, uh, you know, that's an incredible moment to be writing uh, opinion columns um, and that that must be interesting, exciting, whatever. It's also frustrating, though, because I, I'm, I'm, I'm sure you share this with me. I'm super concerned about the country, about how divided we are, about how much difficulty people have. Um, communicating with, with each other across party lines, across ideological lines, um, and to to be involved in the opinion journalism business right now is to kind of see that up close um, and to feel extraordinarily worried uh, about where the country's going um, and to be concerned about whether one is a constructive force or not um, in moving the country in the right direction. So let, let, let's talk about that. Let's talk about where we're headed politically and the degree to which the change in the administration to the Biden administration uh, has, to what degree has that, I guess, tempered your concern about where the country's heading? Well, it's tempered my concern in the sense that I, I, I like a lot of people, and I don't even view this as a partisan statement, although, uh, you know, I guess it is. I didn't. I did not trust uh, Donald Trump at the helm of this country. I didn't trust his intentions. Um, I didn't trust his judgment. I didn't trust his stability. 
Um, and so simply from the perspective of we now have someone at the helm um, who I think is a more serious person, who I think has better intentions, a better heart, um, a moral core, um, that all makes me feel a lot, well, not a lot, that makes me feel more optimistic about America. But what hasn't changed, and you see this in the response to, to Biden from certain quarters, you certainly saw it uh, garishly and hauntingly on, on January 6th, that hasn't changed the fact um, that different camps of Americans don't trust each other. Um, I think there's a chance for that to get a little better under Joe Biden because he wants to turn down the temperature. His his own language, his own discourse um, is, is a model of that. I mean, he is not hurling insults at the other side. He has been uh, remarkably uh, restrained and temperate in what he has said about the former president. Um, but that's not overnight going to change uh, the flavor and temperature of discourse in the country. And so and so I just don't know. I mean, we're in better we're in better shape with more hope than we were two months ago by a, by a lot. Um, but we're in in by no means are we in a safe place. Well, I was just going to ask you uh, about something you said in terms of Biden's words, because you're somebody for whom, uh, as an op-ed columnist, words matter. Uh, and I was going to make the point that I think Biden's tone matters and, and his words, and it won't happen overnight. Um, and the kind of the question we always debate in our household is, you know, whether some of the poison that's come out over the last four years can can get put back in the bottle or, or, or how much of it are we left with? And I guess we don't, you know, we can't know the answer, but we've got to keep working at it. But, but it sounds like you're saying that the, you think the divisions are so deep that um, that it's going to take time. It is. It is going to take time, um, uh, and it's going to take even more than time. I think it's going to take uh, a much more robust conversation than we're having uh, about um, where and how people get their information and how um, how conscious they are of trying to diversify those sources. How conscious they are you know, of not ending up in a kind of very, very narrow uh, silo of just one kind of information. Um, I mean, I think we even have to have a discussion and it has begun, but not not to the degree it should, uh, about about teaching in the course of a, of a child's education, some sort of news literacy, making people understand how easy it is to end up filtering out um, so much information that, that you're left with with something that's not quite truthful. You know, we're having a whole, whole new conversation about what is truth and people are debating truth. Um, and, are, are you talking about both sides when you're, when you're diagnosing that? I am talking about both sides and I want to be careful. It doesn't mean both sides are equally guilty. I don't want to kind of get into a false equivalence thing, but yeah, I mean, if you, you can find conversations happening uh, on the left, on the far left um, that are as kind of uh, that are as kind of slanted in their, in their understanding of the full picture as the conversations on the right. Um, so many of us end up getting just a sliver of the truth because of, of the new information economy. I mean, it's pretty revolutionary, you know, that you can now, based on, on, on who and what you're following, based on which, which of the channels on the cable news menu you've gone to, um, based on which sites you've bookmarked, you can feel and in some senses be deeply read and you can actually have, um, very little in terms of a spectrum of information coming at you. And you can have an understanding of events and reality that is almost diametrically opposed to somebody else's. And that that makes it so much more challenging right now 
than it was 10 years ago, certainly 25 years ago, to find common ground, to come to compromises. You know, that's why we have often such a paralyzed uh, sclerotic legislature in, in Washington, D.C. I'd, I'd love to get the sense of how you, I guess, you know, I don't know if this is the right way to put it, but both personally and professionally as an op-ed columnist, I was going to ask you how you kind of see or define for yourself your your mission or your, your sense of what success looks like for you. Uh, and I think of your writing, I think of you as kind of a, a champion of decency on the op-ed page. You've got strong views. You can be partisan. But it seems to me that you're always making a plea for, for decency, which um, is so important right now. And I'm, I'm, but again, I, I don't want to put words in your mouth. I, I'm, I'm really curious how you see the role. Well, I mean, thank you for what I take as a compliment. I'm, I'm, I'm delighted you see me that way. It's the way I want to see myself. But I, if I'm, if I'm being really honest, I'm not, I'm not consistently that way. I think it's impossible to write an opinion column and not sometimes in, in the passion you feel for your opinion, end up modeling something that feels, uh, feels different from civility. Um, I think I do always try to return though to a plea for civility, a plea for decency, a plea for understanding. Um, I don't know uh, when this podcast is going to be distributed, but I just finished writing something that'll, that'll be published in the next couple of days, um, maybe as soon as tomorrow in the Times, um, where I lament some of the reaction I saw on the left to Rush Limbaugh's death. Hmm. Now, hmm. Um, I am no fan. Uh, I, I was and am no fan of him and his, his, his career. I think he did real damage to America. And I think that was justly and frequently noted in real time. It's not like, um, it's not like that escaped people's notice or escaped their censure. Um, so I think... At the moment that someone dies, don't that doesn't wash wash their behavior clean. It doesn't mean you're supposed to pay tribute to them, but I think you can retire the insults and the slurs, you know, and the expressions of damnation for maybe what 12, 16 hours, right? I mean, that's just right. kind of that's just kind of common human grace. Um, and I wrote a column saying, you know, kind of let's try to be a little bigger and better that way. You know, let's let's his death doesn't absolve him. And no one would say that. But, you know, the Times, I'm, I'm sometimes critical of my own news organization. They wrote an obituary that was absolutely perfect. It made clear it said in the headline, you know, that he was, uh, you know, someone who had kind of, um, you know, ush ushered in and perfected the era, you know, the, the you know, right wing attack methods. But it didn't say he was a horrible man. You know, it let it let readers come to that conclusion on their own if they felt that way, or it let them not feel that way at least for this moment when someone died. Um, I feel that we have become so incredibly coarse um, and often so hateful in the way we deal with each other. And I don't know, and I just I'm not sure who that serves. I'm not sure what or who it serves for someone to splash a headline across their website that says bigot, misogynist, sexist, Rush Limbaugh is dead. And there was a news site that did that. Hmm. Um, you know, just, just tell us, just with this great piece in the Times after, um, after President Trump, I think bizarrely gave Rush Limbaugh the Presidential Medal of Freedom, our reaction on the Times opinion section, which isn't always this tempered, and I wish, it, I wish it, we did more of this, was simply to run a compendium of some of the things about women, uh, about Asian people, 
uh, about people of color that Rush Limbaugh had said over time. And those words spoke as loudly as any label like sexist or misogynist, you know, or homophobe did. Um, yeah. And so, um, and so, yeah, I mean, I do care about that stuff. I'm sure I am often guilty of what I'm accusing other people of because it's very hard to fling this many words out into the universe and to do it in a job where you are supposed to be opinionated and show your passion. Um, but I hope that I occasionally remind myself and readers that there's a higher road and a better way. Well, I, I think you do. And that's why I kind of characterize you as a champion of decency. And if we don't have those moments of grace that you're talking about, uh, I don't I don't see how we ever get back to to actually hearing each other. You know, those 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 kinds of the kind of headline that you described, they send signals that say we're not going to have a conversation. Right. We're just going to lob charges. And uh, that tends not to get us get us very far. You've been writing recently about um, just what's going on in the Republican Party. And I'd love to get your take. Um, uh, you you had a column about how Trump actually hit a lot of scandals that are taking place in the in Republican Party. And more recently, you wrote about Nikki Haley. What's your what's your sense of where that party is headed? Well, uh, the party, unfortunately, remains kind of headed uh, uh, straight to, you know, straight to the altar of Donald Trump and it's kneeling before it. Um, uh, I mean, there was hours before you and I um, uh, got on the computer, the phone, whatever we call this to do the podcast, there was a story about Nikki Haley who has, you know, who had said some unkind things about Trump after all the kind things she'd said, calling and telling him she wanted to come down and see him at Mar-a-Lago and him saying no. Um, Right now, the Republican Party remains, I mean, we're talking about the, the overwhelming majority of Republicans remain enthralled to Donald Trump. Um, however, uh, what the 2020 election showed, um, more in the presidential than at the congressional level, but certainly it showed it at the Senate level in Georgia, um, what it showed is that there's a real ceiling on how, on how the Republican Party can do at the polls um, if it is peddling Trumpism, if it's indulging in Trumpism. Um, and all of the ugly stuff that goes with that. And so you have a kind of battle going on in the party where you have Mitch McConnell saying, we have to turn the page. We can no longer follow Donald Trump um, to the dead end he's leading us toward. But you have many more Republicans saying, no, I like that Donald Trump a whole lot better than I like whatever you're selling. Um, and I don't know how this is gonna shake out. Uh, certainly there are many more Republicans lining up to compete for the 2024 nomination who are worried about being in good with Trump than they are uh, concerned about breaking from him. You know, so you've got, I mean, Nikki Haley, despite her gyrations is basically someone who, who wants Trump's blessing. Uh, that is true as well for Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz and, and Tom Cotton and, and we, could, we could go on the Donald Trump Jr. But then you have a few others like Ben Sass and, and for now, Chris Christie, uh, who might be interested in that nomination and are going to try to define themselves as people who can stand up to uh, and say the truth about Donald Trump. Um, they're a lonelier crowd now, but a lot could change over the coming years. And I'm hoping um, it changes in a direction where the party pivots away from Trump. And separate from 2024 nominating uh, issues or dynamics, what would you like to see the Democrats do better? I would like to see, what would I, that's a great question. Um, I would like to see the Democrats um, tamp down some of the infighting as they did in order to, in order to win in 2020. Um, you know, for all of our concern that they were going to tear each other apart, uh, you saw, you saw what, what you saw in those 2020 returns was more solidarity than division. 
that having happened, you know, you have in the wake of Joe Biden's CNN town hall on um, Tuesday or Wednesday night, whenever that was, you know, you had um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez taking issue with his position on higher education, taking issue with his position on the minimum wage. Um, a certain amount of that is healthy. I mean, we, we get to a good place when there's debate. What I would like to see the Democrats do is keep that debate um, graceful, to go back to a word we said before, to keep it on a very civil level. Because if the party does, if, if Democrats don't realize they have far more in common uh, than they do not in common, um, and if they don't realize that they won in 2020 um, by you know, retiring many of their grievances with each other, um, then they're gonna end up in a bad place too. And, and, and the prevails in the Republican party right now do not ipso facto mean that Democrats um, cannot worry about their own party's message and mission and unity. Um, so I'd like to see Democrats be really, really mature uh, about what Americans have an appetite for and what they don't really mature about the kinds of arguments they have within their party. Um, I want them to be humble, I guess is what I'm saying. And do you think it's, um, I, I think it's the conventional wisdom, but I, I personally probably subscribe to it, uh, that the president's probably got a hundred days or a year or 18 months, President Biden to get stuff done. Um, and then it's, it's going to get tougher after that. I mean, this is his window. It almost always gets tougher after the beginning. Yes. I think the conventional wisdom on that is correct. I mean, if you look at recent history, it certainly suggests that. Um, but you know, that, that could, that could not be as true this time. We just don't know because if the Republican party continues to have, uh, the sorts of fights it's having right now between the, you know, McConnell position and the Trump position, um, if, if a significant fraction of the Republican Party continues to follow the Marjorie Taylor Greens of the world, you know, down the conspiracy wormhole, you, you could, for a change, have elections in 2022, where rather than the party of the president losing ground, they could gain ground. And that, that would give Joe Biden in his second two years another fresh lease on legislative life. Um, so, so we don't know, but, but I'm confident uh, I know that people in the Biden administration view this 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 territory right now, this patch of runway right now, um, as the best chance they're going to have to fly this plane. Um, so yeah, I mean, will we'll, if 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 the COVID relief package hasn't happened in the next you know seventy five days or so, um, if nothing has happened on immigration, even if they kind of break up the bill that they're talking about. There's cause for concern that um, a lot of a lot of valuable time has been lost irretrievably. Um, I want to take you back to your restaurant days, Frank. One of the reasons that we um, always love talking to anybody associated with restaurants is they've been the key for 35 years now to uh, so much of what Share Our Strength has accomplished in terms of our anti-hunger work. Uh, thousands and thousands of chefs and restaurateurs and culinary community leaders who have been part of our effort um, and have really funded the anti-hunger work that we do. Um, so you were the chief restaurant critic for how many years? Uh, it was almost five, uh, five, five and a half years, almost five and a half years, I think it was, yeah. Uh, do you miss it at all? I do, you know, it's interesting. I, I had, in a, in a, in a, at a prior newspaper, I'd been a movie critic for a couple of years because I was always a movie fan. And having to watch that many movies 
um, not by choice, but by obligation for a while killed my love of movies. When I was the chief restaurant critic for the Times, I ate out pretty much seven nights a week oh and a gosh. couple of lunches too. And I never grew tired of going into restaurants. I, it did not dim my love of restaurants at all. I love them as much to this day. Um, so I do miss having, uh, you know, not just a reason, but a charge, you know, to spend a lot of times in, uh, to spend a lot of time in what I think is one of the happiest environments one can, one can enter. That said, I, I don't wish I were still on the job. It is um, five and a half years of writing a weekly, re there are only so many ways to skin that cat. And I have a lot of other interests. And in my current job as an opinion columnist, I think I can, I can write in a lot more different ways than a restaurant review template allows. Um, and so I, I needed after five and a half years to move on just, just as a writer and as someone whose who's, um, curiosity is, is pretty far ranging. Well, I was just going to ask you, as somebody who loves to write when you're a restaurant critic, the, the, the idea of kind of making it new and fresh and original uh, every time must get really hard after a while. Um, although there's, you know, an endless variety of food and food ideas and culinary innovations, but uh, still putting that to words all the time, that, that must be uh, grueling. <laughs> Nice one. I mean, not, I would never say grueling. <laughs> I think the last thing you can ever do if you've been paid to go out to eat every night and been a restaurant critic is talk about how difficult your job is, right? There are people out there who have really difficult, tedious jobs. The, um, <laughs> the, 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 the downsides of a restaurant critic are pretty, pretty minor in the scheme of things. Um, you know, I mean, I, I tried, I tried as someone, you know, who likes to write and likes to mix it up. And I tried to approach that review template that review format in some in some different ways at different times if a restaurant chef was super interesting maybe i'd begin the review as a profile of that person but at some point in every review you had to talk about the service you had to talk about um you know the the the, the menu how things were executed and that took up a lot of your words and, and over time it did become it did feel to me like it was becoming difficult to do that in a fully invigorated way and you just you just run out of words i mean i mean once you've cycled through tender and succulent, like where do you go, right? I mean, you just, <laughs> I just kind of, I just kind of felt like when I hit the one hundredth use of succulent over the years, it was just time for me to go. You know? And was there a weight, a weight on your shoulders though, in terms of like this is a make or break kind of thing for some of the businesses that you're reviewing? Absolutely, absolutely, and um, and I think that was for me the hardest part of it because I did realize that. Um, I mean, you could not pull your punches. You had to be honest about a restaurant's um, shortcomings because you could never forget that, yes, that restaurant um, represents a bunch of people who have invested you know, their time in it and have money on the line. But there are also all these people called customers who often, um, you know, who are living on budgets where to go out and dump a lot of money in a restaurant is a serious commitment. And, and they're owed, um, they're owed, uh, a certain standard by that restaurant. And there's certainly owed candor and honesty from a restaurant critic. Um, so, I mean, so you have to balance that all, but it would, it would very much um, depress me uh, to think that I was sometimes writing stuff that was crushing people's um, ambitions and dreams and sometimes costing proprietors money. But we were really careful about that at the times. Um, you never wrote a review of a restaurant unless you visited it three times. So you were not, um, so you're giving it every, every chance. Um, if a restaurant was terrible and it was a small mom and pop in, in, uh, operation that not many people were curious about in the first place, 
I moved on and just didn't review it. If I wrote a terribly negative review, it was almost always of a restaurant you know, that was well capitalized in multiple ways that was being run by people um, who had not, you know, who were not going to have their entire fortune bankrupted by that bad review. And I made sure it was a restaurant that people were curious, curious enough about that there was a, for lack of a better adjective, there was a moral reason to weigh on it, weigh in on it negatively because people were curious and wanted guidance. And that was offset by the best part of the job is, which is there were people working in relative obscurity who you could discover or realize had enormous talent. Um, and with one, uh, you know, with one with one review that praised them in the right language in the New York Times, you could make their career. You could, you could, you could make the career of someone who really deserved that career. And I have sort of friends in the business to this day whom I met in the course of my being able to assist them with their dreams. And that's awesome. Did you ever have one? that you put out there, good or bad, that you you wish you could get back? Notwithstanding uh, the rigor that you described of you know the three visits and so forth? I, I probably did, and I probably could have answered that question specifically when I left the job in 2009, but I've been out of the job now for it's been a while, yeah. years. And, um, and my memory is just not good enough to give you a specific example, but I'm sure that's the case, yeah. Uh, I, I don't know if you were able to, um, I guess, sense this from, the position of reviewer, but one of the things that has, has struck us, and as I say, has really made share our strength in our No Kid Hungry campaign is, and maybe this just goes with the restaurant business and hospitality in general, but there's a sense of generosity we found and a sense of, you know, with many restaurants, uh, a real sense of having a role in the community um, that was important and a, and a responsibility. And um, I, I think it, distinguishes the restaurant industry from many, many others. But I don't know if that's something you could feel from the restaurant critics table. Uh, I could not agree with you more. And I'm so, I'm, I'm so glad that you said that. I know you all edit these podcasts and I would, I would, my plea to you would be don't take out what you just said about the restaurant industry and restaurant proprietors, because it's absolutely true. They deserve that recognition. I mean, I was blown away. I mean, just an example of what you're talking about. I was blown away in the early months of the pandemic. Um, it was clear then that no industry was, it was pretty much, I thought it was clear then that pretty much no industry was going to be as, as devastated as the restaurant industry. Um, and that was a span of time when in real time, restaurateurs were losing tons of money. And yet there was a long list of restaurateurs whose response in those days, since their kitchens weren't serving customers, was to press those kitchens into the service of needy people um, you know, of other needy people who'd been hit by the pandemic, of I, I, so many restaurants in New York were making meals for and feeding um, frontline workers, you know, medical workers. And they're doing this at a time when they, they, should, they should be the recipients of philanthropy because they need it so badly. Um, but that is their nature. I think, it, I think it is part and parcel of the hospitality industry. I think it is something about the nature of people who go into restaurant work. Um, and I, I could not admire what they did then and what they do in general more. It's also really, really lovely of you to be praising them for that because your, your organization, Share Our Strength, is, is a model for giving back and caring about people. And it's one of the reasons I was delighted to come on and do this podcast with you. Well, thanks. And, uh, you know, as, as you said, with the restaurants in particular, just as their, you know, the economic rug was being pulled out from under them, uh, there they are back in the community helping others. 
Um, Frank, you've written uh, four books and I know that you're working on another. Um, and it's, uh, I, I've read some of your writing about it because uh, as I recall, it was back in February of 2018, I guess we're talking now almost three years ago that you wrote a, a piece about, uh, I think waking up and having the vision blurred in your right eye and realizing that you were losing your sight there, uh, as a result of a, of a rare condition. And, uh, you, you wrote very poignantly about struggling with something that's not necessarily visible to other people and how that's kind of changed you in a way and made you more sensitive to people's struggles. Um, uh, I know you've, you've still got work to do on the book. It's not uh, on its way to the publisher, but can you tell us a little bit about it and a little bit about just how, how you're doing and how's, how's your health? Uh, yeah. Um, thanks for asking. Uh, I'm my, my health is good. Uh, my, my vision is stable. My, my condition disorder, whatever you want to call it is a sort of odd one, which is when it happens to people, they lose, um, they lose a lot of the functional sight in one eye instantly. It's not, it's not a progressive thing. Um, and, and that becomes the new normal for them. That becomes the status quo. And the only thing that is sort of kind of up in the air or not fixed is that once it happens to one of your eyes, um, you, uh, according to the literature, have about a 20% chance of it happening to the other eye. So if it happens, so I, I have, I have vision that is still correctable to 2020 out of my left eye. Turns out you can live, a, you know, fully and do everything, um, pretty much. Uh, maybe I can't fly a plane, but with, with just one eye as opposed to two. Um, but I, I live knowing that there's a one in five chance that I could go blind. And that is probably a much greater chance than, than your chance. And it's, it does, it does kind of reorient you in the world, um, injects a degree of uncertainty in your life. It also, I think, um, and this is this brings us to the book. I, I think it, I, I through my one good eye, I began to look at the world in a different way. I became much more sensitized to and aware of um, how how pale my struggle was and is in comparison to what most of the people around me go through. I think we don't really take a careful look at what the people in our orbits, um, what they're struggling with that's visible, what they're struggling with that's invisible. We don't inquire. Um, and one of the things I write about in the book, which is part memoir, but also kind of a part, part of reflection on aging and affliction, is that if we all walked around wearing sandwich boards that told people um, what had gone on in our lives in general and recently and what was going on then that we were struggling through, the, the, the loved one we just lost, um, the, the back pain that haunts us every hour, but you can't see it, um, you know, something that happened in our childhoods that we overcame, but that kind of resonate, you know, that kind of sticks with us to this day. I think we would be a lot kinder to one another. And I think it would be a lot harder to feel self-pity during difficult circumstances, because I think struggle is the norm in life um, for everyone at every level. Um, and what happened to me got me to thinking about all of that. And hopefully that will be reflected in a much more eloquent way than I just spoke in the book. I was pretty eloquent, actually. And um, one of the things I'm always telling my children, uh, and you share wisdom with, I think, Think it was Plato who said, "Be kind, for everyone you meet is fighting a hard battle." And I always tell my kids to remember that. You know, you you don't see it; it's not visible. But uh, whatever battle they're fighting, they're they're probably been fighting a hard battle at some point, if not now. And uh, I wanted my kids to at least think of that. Um, what's your book going to be called? Do you know yet? 
Um, I do have a tentative title and my editor seems to love it, but uh, for fear that it will change and also just kind of to not reveal <laughs> too, also to not reveal too much. I'm, I'm going I'm to keep that in my pocket. Okay. For now. If, if When's it going to come out? Um, if I turn it in as I'm supposed to in mid-April, um, it will come out sometime in the first half of 2022. So maybe about a year, a year and a month from now. Okay, something to look forward to. So uh, if it's not enough to read Frank Bruni's books and his New York Times column, you've also got a newsletter. Tell us how, uh, both why you do it and how people can find it. Uh, thank you for asking. I, the newsletter is, 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 uh, has turned into something I really enjoy. So, you know, newspapers are trying to, are, are trying all these new ways to engage with readers. And sometimes when you have certain writers who readers have gotten to know over the years and maybe feel a close connection to a newsletter is, is a way to, you know, it's sort of like a, like the blogs of yesterday. It's a way for me to kind of write about a number of things in a personal way. It goes out every week on Wednesdays at noon to its subscribers, it's free. And it's really been rewarding because the people who get it, they're people who read my column in the paper, but they do seem to feel a different sort of immediacy and intimacy um, with material that comes into their inbox with my name on it. And that's written in a much more um, conversational and personal style. Um, I think we're up to about 250,000 subscribers, which is great. And I would love more of them. And people can subscribe by going to uh, www.nytimes.com forward slash Bruni letter. Well, I, uh, in anticipation of this, I started subscribing and I guess I would just say to people, you may think, you know, the real Frank Bruni, but until you subscribe to the newsletter, you don't. So folks should do it. It's really, and it's you, really and a treat. And you get something else. You get Frank Bruni's dog, Regan, who's the better, the best <laughs> part of me. And, 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 uh, and I, 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 I say it like I'm joking, but I'm telling you, like if I let too many weeks go by without a Regan picture or a Regan anecdote, my readers revolt. <laughs> uh, Frank, the last thing I want to ask you, and uh, I'll let you go, and thank you for being so generous with your time. Uh, it feels like we're seeing some hope that we'll, you know, get to the other side of this pandemic. Um, what's been your strategy for navigating it? Any tips for folks on what you've done to stay healthy mentally, physically? Um, what What's your strategy been? <laughs> I, I want to say that assumes facts, not in evidence. I'm not, I'm not sure how mentally, physically, or, um, but uh, you know, it's been a cliche that people get dogs during the pandemic. My dog predates the pandemic, but but that has been an enormous help to you know to go out and walk around, um, and uh, and I, I'm someone I'm I'm lucky since I'm a person who's always done a lot of reading, who's always spent a lot of time alone. I think I've had an easier time of it than others have. Um, and I, I, I worry about and wish I had some way to help those people who aren't as accustomed as, I, as I've always been to spending time alone. Um, but I, I do want to say to everyone, I think there's a far side to this. And I think on the far side of this, we will have all learned a lot about ourselves, uh, about America and about what the people around us need, that we may be better for this. It's, it's come at much, much, much too high a price, but it doesn't mean that there won't be some things to extract from it learn from it, um, some moments of grace that we carry away from it. Well, I think and hope you're right. Uh, I keep saying that the, the pandemic has been um, so so terrible in so many ways that uh, I don't subscribe to the silver linings theory, but I do subscribe to the belief that there are things to be learned and there's been uh, introspection and self-reflection and uh, there have been moments of grace that we're going to take away that um, can make us better and stronger. And 
Uh, let's hope that's the case for as many people as possible. Uh, I'm so grateful, Frank Bruni, uh, for the time that you've taken. Um, and I'm really grateful for the way you use your platform as a New York Times uh, op-ed columnist. Um, you're a, a voice for a lot of views that don't otherwise get heard. Uh, you're an original writer and thinker, and we need you there. So thank you so much for taking the time to join us on Ad Passion and Stir. Thank you for the kind words and for, um, and for taking the time with me. Uh, I'm Billy Shore. You've been listening to Ad Passion and Stir. This is our weekly podcast. You can go to adpassionandstir.com and uh, find other episodes. You can rate us and rank us and share and subscribe. And I want to express my thanks to the entire team at Share Strength and our New Kid Hungry campaign who make our work possible and this podcast possible and our producer at District Productive, Paul Whittle. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Billy Shore. Mm-hmm.